0: All right. Well, it's good to have Bradley and be able to preach for us tonight. So you come and preach what the Lord's laid on your heart. Amen. It's been a wonderful day today in the Lord's house. That was a very, uh, it was a very fitting sermon this morning. I thought for what I was going to be speaking on tonight. And I think that song we just sang was very fitting for my topic. My topic tonight is our responses to the king's return, our responses to the king's return. We're going to be looking at two different types of responses, but turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be examining this passage tonight, 2 Peter chapter 3. Starts off by saying, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Saviour. Knowing this first, there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with the water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved in a fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and as in a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, under their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this wonderful passage, the promises that are contained in it, of Your coming, of a day that is coming wherein righteousness is going to abound on the earth, that there will be no sin that is unpunished, there will be no guilt, there will be no violence, no lying, that You will reign, and that holiness will reign, and You will establish Your kingdom we look forward to the day where there will be no weeping or crying, but we'll just have sweet fellowship with You, ruling and reigning with You. Lord, we pray that You'd help us to be diligent, preparing for that day. Help us to be looking, to be growing in our sanctification as You commanded us to be. And I pray that You'd help me as I preach, to, to prick the hearts of the hearers, or that they would be stirred up, uh, to be remembered that You are coming, and that they would put their focus and attention to that fact. In Christ's name I do pray, amen. As I said, we're going to be looking at two responses to the king's return. Now, we are closer today to the Lord's return than we've ever been before. I think that it doesn't take any uh, um, date guessing or anything to be able to make that statement. But Christ makes a major emphasis on the fact that his coming is imminent it can happen at any time. There's nothing that we're looking for to happen before His coming. It could happen at any moment. Right now, today. It could happen before I get the next sentence out of my mouth. He could come. That trumpet could sound. And our blessed hope will return to redeem us, to take us home with Him. That before He pours out His judgment and His wrath upon the wicked, this wicked world. But Peter here, he mentions two times in this epistle his purpose in writing to them is to stir them up, to stir up their remembrance. And that word stir up has to do with awaken. It's to, to waken them out of sleep. Hey, remember, that's what Peter's trying to do. And that's my intention with this sermon, is I want to just encourage and awaken us to the fact that Christ is coming. Now, we hear it so often that it can grow mundane. That fact can grow mundane in our hearts. We can see, you know, I, I know the Lord's coming. People have been saying that for thousands of years. But it, it's it's it is a fact. He could come today. And we need to be Scripture puts a major emphasis on the fact that we need to be looking for that coming, preparing for that coming, praying for that coming. You know, Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer, well, it's not actually the Lord's Prayer, but he was teaching his disciples to pray. He said, Pray. You know, one of the things there is is Pray that that, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's praying for the Lord to come and to set up his kingdom. That should be our desire. We should want that and look for that. There's two different ways that we can respond to this. We're going to look at the first way is the world's response to the Lord's coming. And secondly, we'll look at the saints' response to the Lord's coming. Two very different responses. And Christians need to be careful that we do not... Um, respond the same way that the world responds. And that response is a way of complacency, and we're going to look at that. But look at verse 3 and 4. The first thing that we see is that the world scoffs. The world scoffs at this promise of the Lord's coming. Verse 3 and 4 says, Knowing this first, that there shall come the last days, and we are in the last days, that is today, scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So they say, where is the promise of His coming? You've been saying that He's coming for, for these 2,000 years. Where Where is His coming? The word scoff there is the same word that is translated in Jude 1, verse 18, as mock. They mock us for saying that the Lord is coming. They mock the fact that the Lord is coming. And one of the reasons they do this, the verse tells us that it's because they want to pursue their own lusts. They want to live for their flesh. Turn to Romans chapter 1 and I ask you to hold your finger there, because we're going to be going back there in a little bit. But Romans chapter 1, verse 28. It says, or verse, uh, let's see, yeah, verse 28, it says, And even as they, speaking of the world, did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So it says that they did not want to retain God in their knowledge. And you look back, verse 18 and following, it's talking about how everybody knows, everybody has within them the knowledge. That there is a God in heaven, there is a God. Verse eighteen says, "The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness." It's not that they do not know the truth, but it's that they hold the truth and unrighteousness. And that word "hold" has to do with restraint. It is to put down. They don't want to think about it because they want to. They want to live after their flesh. Verse Again, verse 28 says they do not like to to, to retain God in their knowledge. Because if they do that, they're going to be living with guilt. It condemns them. So the world, they choose to scoff. They perceive us, those that preach His coming, as ignorant people, people that are Bible thumpers, we're cultish, fundamentalists, even though we wouldn't call ourselves fundamentalists as, that that tag is has a very bad a connotation to it through the world if you're called a fundamentalist because they're seen as strict and as rigid they hold standards and I have a quote there's a um for institute I wrote a paper defending the New Testament and uh I want to read this it's a perfect example of a man I quote I quote a man in the paper that I wrote of somebody who, who mocks uh, in writing. This is this is a quote from me. I'm quoting myself here. It says uh, skeptics who refuse to believe usually do not uh, do so not because of a lack of evidence, but because of hatred for Jesus. This is a belief not based on historical facts, but personal bias. Dan Barker, an atheist advocate and co-president of the Freedom from Religious Foundation, was quoted de- debating Dr. Bass from Dallas Seminary, saying, and this is a quote, "...even if Jesus did exist, even if I agreed with..." with," This is his opponent, Dr. Bass, 100%. Yep, he rose from the dead. Yep, there is a God. Yep, I don't deny any of that. "...does not mean that he is my Lord. If he did exist, speaking of God, I will go happily to hell. It would be worse of a hell for me to bow down before a Lord." Regardless of the legend and historicity issue, even if I agreed 100%, I would still reject that being, that being, speaking of the Lord, as the Lord of my life because I'm not better, because I am better than that. I cannot accept Jesus as Lord. You are much more free to live and enjoy your life unshackled from the demands that have some Lord, than have some Lord of your life. To me, I think that's more important then all this historicity stuff, which you heard me admit is a matter of probabilities. I might be wrong. That still doesn't mean that Jesus is Lord. He's not the Lord of my life. End quote. I go on. I said, Christians are often thought of as uneducated and brainwashed, while skeptics reject the New Testament, not because the New Testament is an accurate document or an inaccurate document, but because of the New Testament's proclamation of Jesus. This is not an intellectual decision, but rather a biased emotional decision void of facts. Skeptics can deny the New Testament, but they cannot change history. The New Testament manuscript authority, history, confirmation, and archaeological evidence show it to be a historically accurate first century document. So Dan Barker there, he's a perfect example of somebody who is mocked, who mocks, the idea of of the Lord coming back. And it's not because he does not know the truth. It's because he he doesn't want anything to do with the truth. He can't live his life his way if he accepts the truth. That's the world's response. You know, there's books. I think of um, uh, Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. Now, He doesn't want to speak of any judgment or any, any coming of the Lord. He wants to make you feel good now. Because... To him, this this life, this is what it's all about, and we need to we need to be happy, and we need to to be successful. No, we are also accused of being just condemning. You're so condemning. You talk about the Lord's coming. You're just you're just condemning. Now, why are you so negative? Why can't we be Why can't we be you know happy and joyful? Well. I am happy and joyful about the Lord's coming and I want I want everybody to be happy and joyful about that. We can't be happy and joyful about the Lord's return. And this isn't this isn't a negative message at all. The Lord's return is 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 a wonderful wonderful fact. And scripture tells us we're supposed to be looking and, and desiring, greatly desiring and praying for the Lord to come. And if if we're not, we need to be. That should be our desire. We have something wrong in our life there some priorities that aren't straight. The second thing we see in verses five and seven again uh, hold your hand in Romans chapter 1 but um, back at our text verses five and seven it says that, again it says that they're willingly ignorant. it's not that they do not know the truth. It says, for they for this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with the water perished. So, you know, there's evidence. This is obvious. It's talking about, about when the Lord sent rain and flooded the earth to, to, judge the, to judge the world. Now, there's evidence of that fact, history. There's evidence of a, of a worldwide flood. Now, we can look at fossilized shellfish, in the Himalaya Mountains. You now We can just go look at the Grand Canyon. There's countless, countless evidences that there was a worldwide flood. But again, they don't want anything to do with the facts. We're accused of being ignorant, but they're the, they don't want anything to do with the facts. They hold the truth and unrighteousness. They reject it because, again, the passage says they want to live after the flesh. They want to fulfill their lusts. And there's evidence that 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 Christ died and rose from the grave. We can can have complete confidence that his word is one hundred percent true and he's going to continue to fill his word, fulfill his word. They're they're willingly ignorant. You know, in the book of Revelation, it talks about when the Lord is during the tribulation period, when the Lord is pouring out his wrath that the lord will send an angel with the everlasting gospel to declare the gospel and two preachers to preach the gospel to give people one last chance to repent and he's going to pour out judgment and and what is it what is their response that they repent not a lot some will there's 144,000 we know but the majority of the population they don't they don't want anything to do with the fact they see God's judgment it's not that they do not know that there's a god at that at that point they see it it's there and they can they read about it in the book of revelation it's it's so obvious but what they reject it not because it's not true not because they don't have enough evidence it's because they don't they don't want it to be true they, they, they reject it they want to live after the flesh They're willingly ignorant. This is the world's response. This is an unsaved person's response. The book of Peter tells us it would be better for them, those that know the truth and have rejected the truth, to have never even have known it to begin with. The punishment for that person that knows the truth and rejects the truth is going to be more severe than the person that didn't have as much truth. Now, if you grew up in this church and you hear preaching and... and it is given to you and you just you have that type of attitude the world's response of, of i don't want anything to do with that you're willingly ignorant that's a, that's a that's an unsaved person's response born again people accept the truth they embrace the truth so i ask is is that your response to the king's return is it that you just you don't care or you're not excited about it, you're not looking for it. So that's one response. We're going to see the Christian's response. The born-again Christian's response should be nothing like this. Christians must be careful to respond the right way. Now, when somebody talks or a pastor preaches on the Lord's coming, we shouldn't say, well, you know, yeah, people have been saying that for... That's, that's a worldly response. That's a fleshly response. We need to be excited, looking, hastening. So we're going to be looking at the Christian's response, how we are supposed to respond to these truths. There's a couple things that Peter says we're not to be ignorant of. Look at verse, verse 8. The first thing that we see, it says he says, Peter says, but beloved, that is Christians, that's who he's writing to in this passage, churches filled with Christian people, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. So the first thing we need to not be ignorant of is that the Lord is eternal and that the Lord is omnipresent. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years. That, that, I mean, that, that's, that's miraculous. We think of a thousand years. We, when we think of the millennium, oftentimes, which is the thousand year reign, we think, "Oh, that's just that's just forever." No, that, that's, that's just a short, short little piece of eternity. And that's that's how Christ sees things. You know, a thousand years is nothing to Him. And that is often why, when we read about prophecy in the Scriptures, things seem so lumped together and put together, It's because Christ is not He's not contained by contained by con- Contained, there, that's the word, by time. He's not contained by time. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years. It's nothing to him. A thousand years is nothing. We think it's been a long time since he promised that he was going to return. To him, it's not. It hasn't been that long. We might need to not be ignorant of how eternal and omnipresent our Lord is. That's the first command there. Now what a great God we serve. And this is part of the reason why prophecy a lot of time is interpreted incorrectly. Because people fail to understand the mind of God, who God is. God doesn't think he's not contained by the things that that, that we are. The second thing we see that we're not supposed to be ignorant of is that he is faithful. Verse 9 Says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. That is, he's not hesitant to fulfill his promise. He's not of delay to fulfill his promise. He's not delayed. God is on time. He is faithful to fulfill his promises. You know, again, we, we look at the world and we think, where, when is the Lord going to ever return? And I'm sure people were thinking that during World War II and during World War I with Hitler. No, all this evil going around in the world. Where is the Lord through all this? No, the the Lord, the Lord is still. He's still ruling and reigning in the affairs of men. He's God is on time. He's not late. And Peter says here, don't be ignorant of this. The Lord is not slack. He's not of delay concerning his promises. We need not to be ignorant of that. He is faithful. The third thing goes on, that Christ, something we're not to be ignorant of, is Christ is long-suffering. Verse 9 says, it goes on to say, But but Christ is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. No, the Lord is not willing that a single person perish. That's why He gives them truth. That's why He gives us a conscience to be able to to look at creation and say, there is a God. That's why He gave us Scripture. That's why He died for us and rose from the grave and gave us numerous amounts of evidences. He didn't have to give us this this preserved, perfect book to be able to look back and say, yep, that promise is fulfilled. Yep, that promise is fulfilled. He didn't have to do that to us. He could have just said, no, you you need to have faith. No, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. He's given us plenty of opportunity to repent and this is something calvinists this is a command that calvinists are disobeying they're not they're not aware of this now peter said don't be ignorant of these things christ did not die for the select few he died for the sins of the whole world he's not willing that any should perish and that's why he that's why He has given us so much time. And we we need to be witnessing, telling people that the Lord is not slack. He is coming. He is going to fulfill His promise. And telling people that, hey, the Lord has given you, when we go to witness to people, now, I don't think it would be wrong to say the Lord, and you did this when we met that that um gentleman in the mountains. The Lord sent me here to tell you, hey, you need to repent. Hey, the Lord is coming. You you don't you haven't professed Christ as your savior. Hey, judgment is coming. We need to tell people that. There there's no pride in saying something like that. Now, pastors are referred to as angels, which is which is which means It pretty much just means God's messenger. We are God's ambassadors as Christians. We're messengers of the gospel. We're sent to proclaim the gospel and tell people of this. And Christ is long-suffering. He's allowing us to serve Him during these days, days of COVID-19, of lockdowns. He's allowing us to be a witness during these days. And we look at it, and we say, man, we can't go on knock on doors. We can't do... The Lord is, has ordained that these things happen. He's allowed these things to happen. We look at it and say, wow, this is, this is awful wickedness, and it is. But the Lord has allowed it all to happen. God's plan is still moving forward. And we need, we need to be out witnessing to people. We need to be telling them of the long suffering of our Lord. So we see we're not supposed to be ignorant of these things. Another response that Christians have that we're supposed to live godly. Verse 10 and 11 says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all of these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? So Peter's saying, This earth, the things that now are, they're all going to melt. <laughs> they're all going to be gone. Knowing this, we ought to live godly. That's the command. The word conversation. The word conversation has to do with our manner of life, our conduct, how we conduct ourselves. Now I ask, I think of somebody who didn't, an example of somebody who didn't conduct himself in a Christ-honoring way, in a godly way. That's a lot. A lot of... Pitched, he chose in the very beginning to pitch his tent towards Sodom. And then we find him later on, he's living in Sodom. And then when judgment comes, he goes to plead with his, his his sons-in-laws and his daughters, saying, hey, an angel come to me, the Lord is coming, we need to get out of Sodom, we need to get out of here. They counted him as a fool. It says that they, they mocked him. They scoffed at him. Well, had he maybe not pitched his tent towards Sodom in the beginning, raised his family in Sodom and Gomorrah, had he not vexed his righteous soul day by day, that's, that's living with a guilty conscience. Every day, that's living with a guilty conscience. Somebody that is born again, but every day lives with a conscience that's, that's convicting, convicting him, convicting him, convicting him, and not repenting of it. He vexed his soul day by day. That is not how the Christian ought to live. We don't have to live that way. We can confess our sins and repent of our sins. Get out of Sodom. Lot could have got out of Sodom. Maybe his his friends and the people in Sodom would have listened to him if if he lived more godly, if he conducted himself in a more godly manner. A lot, in the beginning, why did, why did Lot pitch his tent towards Sodom? You know, He had a lot of cattle that he needed to take care of. It looked better over there. His, his focus was on the temporal things. Worldly things. What is our focus on? Is our focus on the things of this earth that are going to melt with the fervent heat soon? Is our focus on our career? Is our focus on getting rich, retirement, whatever it might be? If that is the focus of our life, our we're not living godly. We're not living righteously. We're not living as, as Christians ought to live. There's no there's no there's no evil in and doing your business to the best of your ability, and being fervent about your business and trying to grow your business. Brother Robert's trying to grow his business and we're trying to grow our business. There's nothing wrong with that. But if our focus, our number one goal is, I'm going to get this business going, I'm going to have this and this, and I'm going to have this many fleets and and this is how much our company is going to be worth. If that's our f- number one focus in life, we've missed it. We've missed it. If our number one focus in life is to be rich, we've missed it. You know, a lot of us here, I think if we, if we set our minds on our, our, our goals on those things, on being rich, on growing our businesses, on being wealthy, we probably could. I mean, think about how much time we spend we spend here at church. Every Sunday, every Wednesday night, we go on visitation, we help one another here, we care about one another here. If we didn't do those things, man, we could all, we got good work ethic. Nathan's got good work worth. I know he could be wealthy. But he chooses not to allow that to be his focus in life. Because there's better things. Christ is coming. And we need to prepare. Christ's church needs to prepare. We need to be there for one another. We are brethren. We need to meet and provoke and encourage one another to love and to good works and to serve the Lord here. Now, it takes time. It takes sacrifice. It takes effort. And it takes, a lot of times it takes self-denial. You know, man, I could spend my time here. I could take this, this extra job. And man, my income would be so much better. Yeah, but at what cost? Am I going to be so busy that I cannot spend time with my wife and my child and serve here and help people if somebody calls me and says, "Hey, can you help me out with this?" and I'm not be able to help my church people? If that's the case, again, our focus is not in the right spot. We need to be servants of Christ. We need to be serving one another, living for the future. Taking care of ourselves and our families. There's nothing wrong with trying to gain wealth. For Proverbs tells us that, that it is good for a man to lay up wealth for his grandchildren and his children. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that is my number one desire, I look at COVID nineteen and say, the economy is going to collapse. I'm not going to be able to lay up riches for my family. Oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm going to do. That's that is that's a wicked response. That's a worldly response. I think God doesn't know that. Maybe He doesn't want you to be rich. Maybe He doesn't want you to be wealthy. Maybe He would rather you go through a time that is difficult, full of persecution and hardship, so that you can be a witness and grow and glorify Him more in persecution and hardship and difficulties. I think that's where we are. I think today that is 100% where we are. I think the days are going to be getting harder. Maybe not, but it's looking like it. And if we look at that and say, well, look at all my missed opportunities. Is God not in control? God's in control. He's on time. We ought to live godly and serve Him and His church, His people. This is the body of Christ. The other thing that we see is we need to be diligent. Verse 14 says, Wherefore, beloved seeing that ye look for such things that is the coming of the lord be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless you know first timothy chapter 3 says if a man desire the office of a bishop he desireth a good work a bishop then must be blameless a lot of times i've read that and said who can be a pastor then to be blameless but that is throughout all throughout all of scripture we're commanded to be blameless it's here what did jesus say he said be perfect even as your your father which is in heaven is perfect it's a command we're to be holy we're supposed to be like christ and we can look at that and say that's impossible i can't do that well why did christ tell us to do it then why is there a command to to be blameless Now, I thought about that. I thought about if a pastor has to be blameless, what does that mean? Well, think about this. Was Peter, who Jesus Christ chose to be head of his church, was he not blameless? He forsook Christ at one point in time. And even after the Lord had made him a pastor, he he was embarrassed to eat with Gentiles. And Paul had to go up and had to rebuke him for it but yet Christ told him to be a pastor, told him to be the pastor of his church to feed his sheep. Why would he do that if, if Peter was not blameless himself? Was Peter not blameless? What did Peter how did Peter respond to Christ's rebuke? He repented. He repented. How did Peter respond to Paul's rebuke? As far as we know, he he repented. It seems like they kept a a good relationship. Peter mentions Paul here in this passage saying, as as a man of God, someone that's greatly beloved, we need to hold to the doctrines which Paul taught. Obviously, Peter realized that that was wrong and repented. You see, we can be blameless through the blood of, Jesus Christ because our sins are forgiven we can repent and live a life that is godly and that is blameless it doesn't mean that we can be perfect that we're ever going to reach a time where we never make mistakes but it means that when we make mistakes we can confess our sins and Christ is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness We can live a life that is blameless. It takes work, it takes effort, it takes a relationship with the Lord that is so intimate and that is so close, where you are so sensitive to His conviction that when you mess up, when you do something wrong, the Lord convicts you and says, that's not right, you need to get that right. We need to repent of that. And we can go, fall on our knees, and we can repent of it and be blameless and live holy. But if, without the, the blood of Jesus Christ, the command to be blameless, we cannot do that. We cannot do it outside of Christ. We cannot do it without forgiveness. We're to live blameless. The Lord is coming. We're to live our lives without spot. That means without something that some something in our lives that somebody could go to and say, hey, man, you, you're just living with this sin here. Now people can accuse, but truthfully and honestly say that man, that person's living in, in sin there. That's not blameless. That person's not blameless. We need to be blameless. We need to live godly. We need to be diligent to be blameless. That takes diligence. It takes hard work to be blameless. The other thing that we see is we need to be steadfast in the doctrines that we have been taught. Verse 16 and 17 says this, As also, speaking of Peter's, this is what I was referring to when Peter was speaking of Paul, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, speaking of the Lord's return, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, that is, they twist, they change, they manipulate the Scriptures, as they do, as the as also the other Scriptures, unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So, if you look back prior to this, Peter told the church, he's warning in in chapter two of this, he's warning them that, hey, there's gonna come false prophets and they're gonna be among you. They're gonna be in your church. And that wasn't, that wasn't, uh, they might be in your church. No, he was telling them, there are going to be false prophets that enter the church. And we can rest assured that at times there is gonna be false prophets that come and that rest and twist the scriptures. We need to be diligent. Doesn't mean there's one here right now, and we we have to be paranoid that oh, who is it? No. Doesn't have to be all the time. <laughs> the pastors command to keep the church holy and pure. But they will come in. And they will teach things like amillennialism. Things like, like we're living in God's millennial reign now. Or they'll teach things like. Like, we're going to go through the tribulation period. Peter says, you need to continue in the doctrine that you've been taught. You need to remain steadfast in the faith. The things that Paul taught you, the things that I've taught you, hold fast to them. Be diligent. Don't listen to anybody else that speaks contrary to Paul, speaks contrary to me and the doctrines of of our Lord and Savior. People will come up with all kinds of ideas and philosophies and dates and messes. Who cares? Let them. But for our church, for these people, for us, we need to continue in the doctrine that was taught here that Paul taught, that Peter taught, that our pastor teaches. That's all that matters. Who cares what everybody else thinks and believes? It doesn't matter. They can guess, they can speculate. And we're taking a prophecy class now, and one of the things that that pastor Webb has emphasized is that when you interpret prophecy, there should always be application to the things that you interpret. What is the application for the interpretation of of, of what you've what you've interpreted there? in other words let's say let's say the Lord is not gonna there is no rapture and that we're living in the millennial reign now. What does that mean? What what are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be looking for? No, we're supposed to be preparing. We're supposed to be working. We're supposed to be being diligent. We're supposed to be looking, hastening. We need to continue in the things we've been taught. Not worry about what other people teach. Because the Lord's coming. If we forget that, we're, we're going to face swift destruction is what Scripture tells us. If we neglect the fact that the Lord is coming. The, uh, one of the last things we see, in verse 18, Peter commands that we grow in grace and knowledge. He says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. We are to be growing. I thought this morning's message was wonderful, that it fit very well with this. One of the things that that, that pastor said was that we are not here to simply sit back and wait for heaven. That's not why Christ saved us. We're to be diligent. We're supposed to be working for heaven. Not working to get there, but working that when we get there, we'll be found faithful. Because that's all that matters. Eternity. What we do in this life for eternity is all that matters. So are you growing? Are you hastening? Do you look for the Lord's coming? Do you pray as the Lord commanded us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or are you not ready for that? Are you not prepared to see your Lord and Savior? Have you confessed Him as your Lord and Savior? Are you hastening? Are you looking? Over and over we see look, looking for, hastening unto. Now Peter's I said at the beginning, Peter's intention for this was to stir up their minds about these things. To awaken their minds. Hey, the Lord is coming. Be diligent. Be looking. And be diligent. Watch for false prophets. That tells me that there's a tendency for us to allow these truths to grow mundane. For us to forget. For us to put those thoughts to sleep. (laughs) My intention, as Peter's was, is to stir you all up, to look for and hasten into the coming of our Lord. He's coming, and it appears that He's coming soon, very soon, sooner than it's ever been in, in history. He's coming, it's at hand. Are you ready?